Well, friends, as we continue through this hour of worship, we are going to go to God's Word, wrapping up a sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. And a reminder that if you've missed any of these sermons, nine of them, including today total, you can go to our YouTube channel and get caught up. And a great reminder that the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church in Galatia in the first century, is talking about the limitless power that is afforded to every single follower of Jesus when they put their faith and trust in him, they receive the Holy Spirit and then fruit grows in our life. But it is a singular fruit. A reminder that these nine things that we've gone through every single week ending today is all about one thing, that the Spirit of God can grow up in you. It's not about having a few for the sake of others, but it's almost like a nine-sided elastic band object that when you pull and grow in certain and you expand in certain areas, it doesn't lose the others. But over the course of our life, as we follow Jesus, the Spirit of God transforms us more and more in the image of Jesus, growing all nine of these up in our life. And that's so important because so many people, they mistake the phrase fruit of the Spirit for fruits of the Spirit. And they say, well, I'm really good at having patience and love, but I I'm not really good at being good or having self-control. And it's a great reminder that when we receive the Holy Spirit, there is a supernatural work that is done that is actually impossible without the Holy Spirit. Because we can arbitrarily, and in some ways without God's help, grow each of these things in our lives. But on one hand, they will always be a shadow of the fullness that God can give us through the Holy Spirit. But also, as we try in our own strength, as we try to master each of these nine things, ultimately, we will never succeed at all of them. And we get to the last one today, and it's a very interesting one because of a number of things. One, in the sense that it is the last of the nine, but also I'm thankful that this last of the nine wasn't placed first. Because if this last in the list of nine was placed first, it would further cement in our minds that all we have to do is discipline ourselves, uh, control ourselves in order to produce these things in our life. But it's a reminder that this is the fruit, not of the self, but fruit of the Spirit. So let me read for us. This is Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. And then I'll share the context and we'll dive right in. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. This, my friends, is the reading of God's Word, as we say every week, thanks be to God. You heard it there right at the very end, the last in this list of nine of the fruit of the Spirit, nine attributes of the Spirit, nine facets of the Spirit like a diamond is self-control. Now this word self-control in the English language immediately causes problems because it begins with the word self. And we live in a world that very much longs to lift up the self and to live for the self. 
And there's a lot of self-help books. There's a lot of uh, humanistic worldviews that say that you have all the power within you to become the person that you long to be. That to be self-actualized, the world says, is the greatest goal that we could ever have. And so sometimes through a modern Western secular worldview, if we read this text without understanding the ancient world and the biblical framework, we can misunderstand what Paul is trying to communicate for every single follower of Jesus. And we can begin to think that this fruit of the Spirit that only comes from a relationship with Jesus that grows in our life organically is actually something that we have to work for and do and master ourselves. Now, it's interesting in the Greek language, again, the language of the New Testament, it is a number of words put together. The Greek word for self-control, which, by the way, the King James Version uses the word temperance. The Greek word for self-control is this. It's egkratea. The root word right in the middle there is krat, and it means power, dominion, lordship. In the beginning, egg comes from ego, self. And so this word actually means power over oneself, dominion over oneself, lordship over oneself, which is very different than the self having lordship and power over you. So subtle, but it is this one word that actually echoes back to the problem that the early church was having in the first century in Galatia. Now let's take a step back for a moment. I haven't included this in any of the eight so far, now today being our ninth one, but the, the context for what Paul is writing to the church in Galatia in this little section here, he's talking about Christian freedom, freedom in Christ. The problem is, is that they were using their freedom in Christ to serve themselves rather than to serve others. In Galatians chapter five, keep those Bibles back open, it says this in Galatians 5, 13, you are called to freedom. Brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. That is the complete opposite of self-control. Self-indulgence is uh, yourself having lordship and control over you. You are led by your desires. You are led by your wants. You are led by your needs. And the complete opposite is you leading your wants, you leading your needs, which we'll get to the how in a moment. But he says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence and rather through love become slaves, servants to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So he is applying a spiritual truth to a practical problem in the early church. They now have freedom in Christ. However, some of them in this community, a lot like us in the modern world, we use our freedom for ourselves and not for the sake of others. We complain about lack of freedom when we can't do whatever we want to do in society, regardless of how much it impacts 
somebody else. And the problem that they had in the first century is the same problem I see in our cities, in our nation, in our world today, that people long for freedom, but we forget a biblical vision for Christ-centered, spirit-led, God-glorifying freedom that Paul is trying to reorient them back to. And in their freedom, they are biting and devouring and actually getting consumed by one another. And that's when he then goes into greater detail and he begins to list all the things that they are doing that come out of self-indulgence. All the things, as he says, that are works of the flesh that are flowing out of their life and into their community because they don't have lordship over themselves, but their self has lordship over them. Here's the list. Verse 16, live by the spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit. And what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. He's speaking to Christians here. And the want that they want is a God-given want in their flesh, their desires, their needs that in many ways, which we'll get to in the Greco-Roman world, were lifted up among a certain segment as something worth pursuing. He says, those things actually get in the way of what you want. But if you were led by the Spirit, you were not subject to the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. This is what they were doing. As their wants and needs were guiding them and leading them and having lordship and dominion over their life and their community and their relationships. There was fornication impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, Paul says, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, Paul says that we are saved through faith alone. And yet out of the overflow of that faith is a life lived in response to God's love for us, where we love God and we love our neighbor as ourselves. And they had forgotten that in the early church. And sometimes in the modern world, we can forget that as well. We can think that God is just for us and we can begin to forget that our lives in response are meant to be for God and for the flourishing of others. And as this list is read about fruit of the Spirit, Paul is saying, in contrast to what you are doing, in contrast, I'll read it again, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, what's interesting is that first list, use the plural word. I just want to keep reiterating this week after week. It is the works of the flesh. And so within that community, all of those things were happening. However, each person wasn't doing each and all of those things. For some people, they were causing division. For others, they had envy. For others, there was drunkenness. There is a truth that every single person has different desires and different needs compared to somebody else. And we live in a world where we can look out and say, I can't believe that they struggle with that. And yet fail to look at the ways in which we struggle. And the Apostle Paul is saying over the course of this community, 
focusing on themselves, all of these works are rising up and destroying their community and actually causing a lesser vision, a lesser experience of them as a community, but also them as human beings. They were being reduced as people. And he says, however, by contrast, there is something called the fruit of the Spirit, different than the works of the flesh, which some people did some things. This is for every single follower of Jesus to experience all nine of these growing up in your life. Remember, Jesus says in John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, unless that happens, apart from me, you can do nothing. This image, this metaphor that Jesus uses about himself gives a picture of the organic connectedness that we have with Jesus in the same way a branch is connected to a vine. There is a sense that the life source of the branch isn't self-sustaining. If you cut it off and you leave it off to the side, it will quickly wither up and die. In the same way, Jesus is saying that if you live apart from me, your life is withering up and dying. And the worst thing about it is that you have no knowledge that that's even happening. But in actual fact, there is this reduced sense of humanness, as Jesus also says in John 10, 10, I have come to give you life and life to the full. And the, the doorway, the entryway, the opportunity is for us to be in right relationship with Jesus simply through faith. We don't have to earn God's love. We just receive Jesus by faith as our Lord and Savior. And in that moment, we are now dead to sin. We're alive in Christ. We're a new creation. We're called out of darkness to his marvelous light. We're part of God's precious possession. We are a royal priesthood and we receive the Holy Spirit that will never be taken from us. And as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident that the God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so a seed is planted and that seed of the Spirit will grow fruit, singular fruit. Now here's what's so important when I read this list, these nine different attributes of the fruit of the Spirit, it is a great litmus test to see when these things are evident in our life, is this Spirit-led or is this self-manufactured? Because I know a lot of people who exhibit a lot of self-control, but they seem to have no joy. There's people who fast, who uh, withhold wants and needs and desires. They live an aesthetic lifestyle, but there is a complete lack of joy in their life. You can see it in their face. Things pop up in their language where they can complain or even come across that they are you know, doing so much because they are withholding these wants and these desires. Actually, that has nothing to do with God's vision for our life. That has everything to do with a first century Greek philosophy called Stoicism. You see, the Stoics were famous in the ancient Greek world. And what's interesting is Stoicism is having a major comeback today. There's books, podcasts, conferences, that are talking about the ancient Greeks like Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and um, Socrates and taking a look at Stoicism as a way to navigate all the problems of this world today. The NFL, 
major corporations are having experts in stoicism come in to speak to their athletes, to speak to their C-suite, to speak to their employees so that they can learn an ancient Greek view of navigating the complexities of life. And stoicism can basically be summed up in this, that you actually have no control over anything in your life except for yourself. And in stoicism, the greatest virtue is self-control. The obstacle is the way. Rather than trying to go around it or to run away from it, it is our perspective, Stoics say, that we can control. It is our body that we can control. It is our heart that we can control. And the greatest virtue that we can self-manufacture, the Stoics say, is one in which we master ourselves. And you can hear in that word egretea, a lordship over self, a mastery of self, a dominion of self, it is very easy to slip into the stoicism if we do it in our own strength. But always that road leads to a joyless existence. And many Stoics uncovered their writing from the first century. There was this deep lack of joy. Even the word Stoic. You seem so stoic. Is a modern word that we use to communicate to somebody that seems to be lacking of joy. That's where that word comes from. But it's also important to understand that in the first century, there was another worldview that was the complete opposite of Stoicism. It was the Epicureans. They said that the, the real way to navigate the complexity of this world is to throw off all self-control and live a life of self-indulgence. In many ways, you could say that when you read the list of the fruit of the Spirit, it begins with love, it begins with joy, and it ends in self-control. If the Stoics had self-control but no joy and no love, the Epicureans were all about love and joy and no self-control. And the Epicureans weren't just people that existed back then in the first century. There are Epicureans today around the globe that says, you do you and I'll do me. And whatever you want to do is good for you. And who am I to judge you? Who am I to say that you can't do that? And we live in a world that there is this sense that the greatest way to freedom is by just self-indulging. And our society has basically placed two different categories. There's unhealthy self-indulgence, but there is healthy self-indulgence according to every society and especially our modern Western society today. And what I'm observing is that the, the category for healthy self-indulgence is getting larger and larger and larger and larger and is beginning to overtake that which former generations used to say was unhealthy self-indulgence. And that was true in the first century as well. Anything goes was how the world worked back then, if you were an Epicurean. And yet that pathway leads to a sense of shallowness, a sense of hollowness, a sense of getting to the mountaintop and then realizing the thing that you thought you were going to have internally hasn't been produced. The amount of conversations I've had with people who are at the top of their careers, who have made it at the top of their profession, 
who the world might look at and say, my goodness, they have everything they want and they confide in me that, yes, despite those things, there is still this nagging sense of a lack of direction, a lack of significance, a lack of security, a lack of peace. But now it has been amplified and multiplied because now that they have gotten the thing that they thought was going to give them peace, the thing that they thought was going to give them security, and they now have it, but it hasn't. And the self-realization of that moment causes many people to fall into this tailspin. And so whether a Stoic or an Epicurean, it is a great reminder that when we try to do things in our own strength, whether having self-control or just being a loving, joyful person, regardless of self-control, it ultimately leads to a counterfeit version of what we were created for. Sure, we get a sense and a form of of what life could look like, but it is so far from the fullness. Like Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life to the full. So what might it look like if we allow the Spirit of God to grow self-control in our life? Again, this begins with a relationship with Jesus. This begins with us with empty hands of faith saying, There is nothing in my own strength that I can ever do to find love and joy and peace and patience and self-control. There's nothing that I can do in my own strength and I am desperately in need of the only one who can do that in and through me and that's Jesus. And when you come to Jesus with empty hands of faith, you can actually receive all that Jesus has for you. And when I look at the life of Jesus, it was the most beautiful, most loving, most patient, most self-controlled life history has ever seen. And the remarkable thing is that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, Christ dwells in you through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit wants to transform you more and more into the image of Jesus. So this isn't us imitating Jesus. This is us allowing more of Jesus to rise up and to lead and guide us in our life. So two things that I see, two outcomes perhaps of what happens when you Pray for when you ask the Holy Spirit to grow in you a spirit-led, not a self-manufactured, a spirit-led sense of self-control. The first is this. You have a greater vision for what is worth pursuing. A greater vision, not a lesser vision. You see, some people on the outside looking into Christianity mistake Christians as being ones who have a narrower life, a less satisfaction sort of life, a less fulfilled sort of life. That is a complete misunderstanding of the life that Jesus invites us into. You see, we could could fall into religiosity and we could call it Christianity, but ultimately in that, we actually are just practicing stoicism You see, much of the Christian religion over the last 2,000 years goes back and forth between Stoicism and Epicureanism. And both of those things are a reduced vision of God's hope for us as people and as a community. And so as the Spirit grows in us, this this fruit of the Spirit that includes self-control, we get a, a bigger version, a greater vision of what God has for us and what's worth pursuing. I love how C.S. Lewis says this. He says that God has given us such a remarkable vision, and yet we are like kids who are satisfied to play in the mud when a 
promise of a holiday at the sea has been extended to us. The problem with us isn't that we want too much, it's actually that we want too little. God's vision for us is so great, is so grand for us to live in freedom for the sake of God's glory, to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself for the sake of the flourishing of all people. That vision is so great, so grand. And it's almost like an athlete that has a vision for something greater that causes them to be willing to put in the self-controlled, self-disciplined work. In fact, Paul actually uses this metaphor. He actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says this in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things, but they do it to receive a perishable wreath, a trophy. But we... As followers of Christ, we receive an imperishable one. So I don't run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. Paul had a vision that was so enlarged because of the Spirit of God dwelling in him that he likened it to running a race. And he even says elsewhere in his writings, I have fought the good fight, I have run the race. The writer of Hebrews says that we should lay aside every weight and thing that ensnares us and run with perseverance towards Christ. You see, the more that we know Jesus, the more that we find a freedom within ourselves. And it is this remarkable truth that I've experienced in the physical world that is a reminder of this spiritual truth. Now, some of you, you know that I've uh, run a number of races. Uh, I've competed in some. I've done some, you know, self-identified um, goals. One of the biggest ones that I ever did, some of you might be aware of this, myself and six others, seven of us total, we did a double crossing of the Grand Canyon. We started on the South Rim descended down at 3 a.m., made our way across and up the north rim, turned around and came back across and back up. It took 17 hours to go 48 miles, over 10,000 feet of total elevation gain and loss. You might think we're crazy, and yes, we were, but we had to keep in our mind's eye the vision of making it home alive, of crossing twice the Grand Canyon when we did all of our training for the many months leading up to it. And I've got to tell you, in the nine months leading up to that Grand Canyon double crossing, the amount of times I was able to, when my alarm clock went off at 5 a.m., sometimes at 4 a.m., sometimes at 3 a.m., the amount of times when that alarm clock woke me up and I didn't turn it off and go back to sleep was greatly, greatly, greatly greatly reduced because I knew that in getting myself up out of bed, in the coldness of winter, in the exhaustion of being in the middle of training, of having to navigate the dark out on the trails with the thought of mountain lions and coyotes and bobcats here in the Santa Monica mountains, uh, the thought of that was 
part of a greater vision that I knew that I wanted to cross and I wanted to get back home alive to my family. I wanted to experience it. But at the same time, I've also been in seasons where I didn't have that vision. I didn't have a race coming up. And trying to maintain, staying healthy, you know, trying not to uh, lose all of the training and kind of start back at zero. In those seasons of not having a bigger goal, the amount of times that the alarm clock would go off, not at 3 a.m., didn't need to, not at 4 a.m., didn't need to, not at 5 a.m., didn't need to, it would go off at 6 a.m., much later than all the other times where I would be training for the Grand Canyon. It would go off at 6 a.m. And the amount of times that I just hit the snooze and went back to sleep was greatly, greatly, greatly increased. Because my picture was just that run, that three, five, 10 mile run. And I didn't have a greater vision of a race, of an experience coming up. And I found that the only way that I can actually have a consistency, the only way I can have a self-discipline, the only way I can have mastery over my body is to have set not just goals, but a very specific, tangible thing that I am aiming at. And so now, just for me personally, I commit to once or twice a year signing up for something big enough that then motivates me to practice, to train. Some of you have told me, not in the athletic realm, but you have this in your business, in your career, in your profession. Some of you have students where you have a very, very clear goal in mind to make partner, to get the part to be able to have your first script green-lighted, for you to graduate, for you to graduate with honors, whatever it might be, you have very clearly a vision in mind that causes you to, to get up early to study, to stay up late to practice your lines, to sign up for another class, to be able to hone your skills, to put in the extra effort. You've told me just in everyday life in a tangible this is not necessarily a Christ-centered thing, but just the way the world works. When we have a greater vision, we are much more likely to have self-control, to have self-discipline, to not say yes to other things that cause us to say no to that bigger thing. And you've experienced that, I believe, in some way in your life. Now apply that principle to a greater spiritual truth that says, when you aim for Jesus and the life that Jesus longs for you to have, and it's revealed in Scripture, it is a spirit-given vision that we can't understand without the spirit of God dwelling in us. When we catch that vision, it motivates us to stop saying yes to these lesser things because we want the greater thing. You see, that's where it is evident that it is the fruit of the spirit because it's actually a greater vision that gives us more joy the closer and closer and the more and more we get to experience it. But again, if it's self-manufactured, I've just got to be self-controlled. I've just got to say no to this and yes to this. Then we fall into religiosity and then we fall into stoicism. And that is so far removed from the heart of God for our lives. And it eliminates the reason why Jesus came to give us life and life to the full and to die for us. But it's not just a greater vision of wanting more, of longing for more, of pursuing more. It's also when the Spirit of God grows this fruit in our life that includes self-control, we actually have very, very, very clear limits 
that cause us to thrive. So it's a bit of an expanding out and getting a greater vision, but it's also a, a hemming in that ironically causes us to flourish. You see, we live in a world, in the modern world especially, where we are told that a life without boundaries, a life without limits is the best way to have a life of freedom. But tell that to a bird, tell that to a fish, tell that to an acorn. What do I mean by that? A bird has very, very clear constraints, very, very clear boundaries in which it can experience a freedom that no human has ever experienced. The constraints are the air. But the moment you remove those boundaries and you dunk that bird out of the boundaries of air into the ocean, into a pit of mud, into concrete, it loses instantly its freedom, its ability to soar, its ability to fly. Ironically, for the bird, it is the constraints of the air that cause it to fly free. A fish in the same way. In the constraints of water, it can move. It can soar underwater. But the moment that you move it out of those constraints and you put it on dry land, you throw it up in the air. Just like the bird's free constrained space, it immediately loses its ability to swim free. What about an acorn? Remarkably, an acorn, let's think about the acorn of a, an oak tree. Within itself, it has the potential for not just one other oak tree, it has the potential for millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of oak trees that could span the globe. And yet that, that acorn needs to be constrained, buried into the soil in order for it to not only free, but to bear more and more acorns, more and more fruit for an exponential impact. The moment you remove those boundaries, the moment you remove those constraints and you take it out and you leave it there on your kitchen table, the moment you just drop it into a, a jar of jello, it loses its ability to to grow, to stretch free, to multiply itself perhaps to the ends of the earth. Humans are made the same way. And if in the natural world we can rationally see that actually in constraints there is freedom, God has designed human beings to have constraints so that we could experience the greatest freedom the world has ever seen. And really the constraints are simple. It's not a long list of do's and don'ts. It's all about keeping the things we do in two categories, loving God and loving others. Those are the constraints. In fact, this is the answer that Jesus gives people when they say, what are the most important commands? What are the constraints? What's the law? What are we supposed to do? Again, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And he simply says this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And second, to love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two things. Those are constraints. The moment you stop loving God and love yourself more, like a fish in the air, a bird in the sea, an acorn on the concrete, life stops. 
freedom is extinguished. The moment you stop using your freedom for the sake of others, your family, your roommates, your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. And the biblical definition of neighbor isn't just those who live in physical proximity to you, isn't just those who are like you and look like you and vote like you and listen to the same music and dress like you. These are the people who are as far removed from you on the planet as possible in terms of their worldview, in terms of their values, in terms of how they vote, of how they talk, of where they live. This is a a vision, a constraint that leads to so much freedom. It's what God longs for you in your life, that this fruit would bear up. And it wouldn't just be fruit that ends with you, but it would be fruit that causes more fruit to grow. Like an acorn that has within itself the potential of millions of oak trees, you have within yourself the potential for millions of followers of Christ. Have you ever thought about that? And it doesn't have to be in one lifetime. It could just be one person in your entire life that comes to a saving faith-based relationship with Jesus somehow because the fruit of the Spirit grew in your life in such a way that they took notice They realized that it wasn't about you self-manufacturing these things. They saw a freedom in you, a love in you, a joy in you, a patience in you, a goodness in you, a kindness in you, uh, all these things, including self-control that doesn't make sense from a rational point of view, but they see these things and all of a sudden they say, I want that. I want Jesus in my life. And in that moment, a seed is planted. It's not your work. It's the work of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow in their life. What an opportunity, friends, we have, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the world around us. So let's continue to come back to Jesus with empty hands of faith, saying, Jesus, grow in me through the power of your Holy Spirit, a fruit that will last, that loves you, that loves others. Give me a vision for that. Give me a freedom in the constraints of that. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are so good to us and that as we move through this world that we wouldn't settle for stoicism, we wouldn't settle for Epicureanism, but through the power of your spirit, you would give us a greater, a grander vision of what it means to soar, to move through this life in humility and confidence of joy and self-control, of love and of patience. Would you grow these things in our life? And may it not be self-manufactured, but be Holy Spirit-led. In your name, Jesus, we pray. We say together, amen. You know, some interesting information that not everybody knows that we share within our leadership groups is that 95% of people who join our worship services every single week do so online or on television. A remarkable thing that you are a part of. Our ministry that God has given us over the course of 60 years has had to adapt and change in a variety of ways. And we are in this season right now where we serve people not only on our physical campus, but equip them and gather with them in worship no matter where 
they live. Some of you, that's here in Los Angeles. Some of you, that's somewhere else in our nation. Some of you are one of the residents across 191 countries that are now part of the Bel Air Church worshiping experience. And I wanna invite you to consider yourself part of this church family. We'd love for you to consider membership. We'd love for you to consider getting invested in more ways. And also, I'd like to invite you to give your time, your talent, and your treasure as part of the church family. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, it's an opportunity to partner with God with what God is doing in this city and around the globe. So would you go to belair.org forward slash give. You can give towards our general fund to extend more and more ministry into the city and around the globe, but also you can choose a drop-down menu that enables you to pay and support us specifically in our KCOP broadcast television ministry. However you choose to give, it's an opportunity for you to lean into this life that God invites you into. God longs for you to simply give back to what God is doing because God first gave to you. So as you give, be blessed. Do so with generous hearts and do so with gratitude and joy that God is gonna multiply your gift exponentially for God's kingdom purposes. Again, thank you and may God bless you on this day.